from the bondage of the law. Uh, we're looking at the first six verses of chapter 7 of Romans. Romans 7, 1 to 6, we'll just read it again. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives. For example, by law a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he's alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. Amen. Makes all the difference uh, to know uh, whether a law is binding or not. Uh, for example, uh, if you're in the States and uh, you're driving on the, the right hand side of the road, uh, you can, in quite a few circumstances, turn right on a red light. Try that over here and you will receive uh, a penalty for doing that. Uh, it's against the law to do that anywhere in this country. Put your car into the garage for an MOT, and you may have a document that says that there are certain items which are advisory. And in other words, uh, it's recommended that you get these repairs done, but it's not illegal uh, to ignore it. However, there are things which the MOT document may say, uh, you must have done. You have failed the MOT, and unless you have them done, you're breaking the law in driving the car. It is mandatory. It is compulsory. Uh, it would be against the law to break it. One of the, the great evangelical leaders uh, of the 18th century, John Newton, the, the hymn writer, the former slave trader, uh, once uh, commented that a misunderstanding of the role of the law uh, in the life of the believer is at the root of most religious error. This is where Christians will largely go wrong, not getting uh, where they stand in relation to the law. So this is a really important section of the Bible. And Paul uh, found that he was constantly being accused of mishandling the law of God. In Acts 21, we read that some of the Jews in Jerusalem stirred up the crowd, saying, Men of Israel, help us. This is the man, I, Paul, who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law and this place at the temple. Now, it's in a sense not surprising that Paul should have faced this accusation, because if you go through Romans thus far, you'll find that nearly every reference to the law is in negative terms. Uh, especially, uh, think of verse 14 in chapter 6, For sin shall not be your master, for you are not under law, 
but under grace. It does sound as though Paul has thrown the law of God out the window. Now, it's important for us to understand the context in Paul's own teaching uh, of this section here about the law. And so let's just very, very briefly recap uh, the doctrine uh, that we have been looking at in Romans. Uh, in the first uh, few chapters, chapter 1 to 3, verse 20, chapter 3, verse 20, uh, Paul shows that everyone, without exception, uh, fails to have a righteousness that will fit them for uh, the presence of God and for heaven. The bad news needs to come first. And then the good news of the gospel follows uh, from that, from Romans 3, verse 21, to the end of chapter 5. Paul uh, is expounding his central doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And the gospel is, you lack a righteousness that will fit you for heaven. God has provided a righteousness from outside yourself, the righteousness of Christ, and that is credited to you, that is imputed to you, that is given to you uh, by faith. When you trust in Jesus, you're clothed in the righteous garments of Christ himself. We are saved because someone else has paid our debts and clothes us in his righteousness. And he goes on, this is not something new. This has been the way all through the Bible. And he, he illustrates from Abraham and David that the men of the Bible were all saved, not by their righteousness, but by faith. Uh, this is simply bringing out into the light what has, what has always been there. And so chapter 5 concludes, The law was added so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased more. Now, in the minds of readers, that immediately raises the question, well, why bother living a good life? If uh, God doesn't judge us on our works, why bother trying to live a good life? And the objection is expressed in two different ways. First of all, uh, the objection comes, let us sin so that grace may increase. Uh, my sinning gets God more glory because he forgives me more often. So let's go for it. Let's just sin more and more. And Paul says, no. And he uses an illustration from baptism uh, to show that we have been united with Christ. And it's inconceivable, therefore, that we would go on sinning because baptism shows us that we died with Christ to sin. And then the objection comes in a different form. Well, if we are saved by grace, uh, surely it's, it's okay if we sin. Paul again says, no, it's not okay that you sin. And this time he uses the illustration of slavery. Don't you know that you were once a slave to sin? But now you've become slaves to righteousness. This is the third illustration that Paul is going to use in relation to law. And this time he's using an illustration from marriage to show us that a relationship with the law has been vitally altered. Now, all along, Paul is defending himself against the accusation that uh, he is against the law. And the kind of big word for that is antinomian or anti 
Antinomianism is the idea of being against uh, law in itself. Uh, so you, you, you virtually say, I'm free to do as I please. There are no rules. So you can be a legalist on the one side, slaving away by keeping rules, hoping that God will accept you for that. Or there's the antinomian who has thrown rules out the window altogether and says that they've got no uh, continuing value. Now, it might seem that in our day, uh, the situation is very different, that we don't have many people who are passionate about the law. Uh, and at one level, that, that's correct. Uh, you find that uh, within the church, uh, there's very little uh, patient uh, study of the Ten Commandments, for example, as was the case in earlier generations. You just have to, to look at some of the, the, the volume of, of, of uh, tremendously edifying work that earlier centuries of the church produced on the commandments. Uh, today, it's very common to hear uh, people within the church say, well, there's only one commandment, and that's the commandment to love one another. And even when people wouldn't say that, the, the fact that they pay such scant attention to the Ten Commandments does uh, show what little place they give to the law of God. So it would seem that our problem is not with legalism, but it's with people who are impatient with the law, who are antinomian. However, we shouldn't underestimate how much of a legalism still exists in people's hearts. How much of the Pharisee there is in you and there is in me. Because even people who want to uh, pretend to throw out the law, replace it with their own little laws, their little shibboleths, or the, the kind of uh, brown rules that their own particular branch of the church hold to. And although they may be sitting loose to the commandments, they have got their own set of rules. And they judge people severely as to whether or not they keep these rules. And so it's remarkable how tight a hold the spirit of legalism has on us. One of the, one of the most important ob observations that we can make, legalism is alive and well, uh, even in those who outwardly don't uh, seem to be legalistic. You need to watch your heart for legalism, I need to watch my heart for legalism, the spirit of rule-keeping, the spirit of seeking to please God uh, by our rule-keeping. So, this is intensely uh, important teaching, and it goes like this. <clears throat> In verses 1 to 4, Paul introduces the principle that uh, a death ends a person's obligations to the law. And he illustrates that principle uh, by marriage. A death ends a person's obligations to law. And then in verse 4, he speaks of uh, our new freedom. What is this new freedom that we have like? And then in verses 5 and 6, there's a new dynamic or a new energy which is now at work. Okay, so uh, we have the end of an obligation, we have a new freedom, and we have a new dynamic. Paul introduces us first to the principle of a death ending 
obligations under the law. Okay? Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man so long as he lives? Okay, that seems pretty obvious. Uh, if you're dead, uh, you don't need to worry about that uh, parking ticket that wasn't paid. Uh, the law can't reach beyond the grave. That's obvious enough. But Paul then goes on to extend this idea to saying that somebody else's death can impact how you relate to the law. And to show that, he goes into the realm of marriage. And uh, he, he go, his argument goes like this. If uh, a woman is married to a man, she is committed under law to that man. Now, in Paul's day, more than our day, that commitment meant that uh, she was under her husband's authority, meant putting up with whatever he might send her way. So, this woman might be like so many women. Uh, she might find that the man that she has married is actually very different from the person, uh, for the persona he projected before they got married. He seemed to be all nice and all charming beforehand. And it turns out that he is uh, a true chauvinist. He is he's a brute. Uh, he doesn't treat her well. He's abusive in the relationship. And yet she finds herself trapped. She is committed by law to this man. And if she were to, to leave and to set up home with somebody else, she would be looked upon as an adulteress. But, Paul says, death changes that. Because if the husband dies, then the woman could marry somebody else and uh, not be thought of as an adulteress. There would be nothing wrong with this marriage. She is released from her legal commitment to that abusive husband. So, the death of somebody else has an impact on the one uh, the other party. That's his point. Now, moving on to, to the next stage. That principle, illustrated from marriage, is made relevant to the believer's relationship to the law. Because a death has occurred that alters our obligation to the law. What's a death? Well, it's a death or, or, or death with Christ, our co-crucifixion with, with, with Christ. Christ's death uh, is relevant to the believer because faith unites us to Christ in his death. You also died, Paul says, to the law through the body of Christ. So we're back to this really important idea in Christianity that we have a union with Jesus our Saviour. Faith unites us in a spiritual way with Jesus. And when he died for sin, we were united by faith to him. Uh, John Stott, in his commentary, points out that uh, this phrase, died to the law, echoes a similar phrase earlier on, died to sin. In chapter 6, verse 2, he says, they appear to mean the same thing. For if to die to sin means to bear the penalty, which is death, it's the law which prescribes the penalty. Therefore, to die to sin and to die to the law are identical. It will signify that through participation in the death of Christ, the law's 
condemnation has been taken away. So because we are involved by our union with Christ in our death, his death, we are now under a new relationship with the law. Now, in practice, it means that we have died to the law as a means of earning our salvation. The way of salvation has always been through faith. That's Paul's point in Romans 4. But by Paul's day, the Pharisees had morphed it into a, a, a way of salvation by works. You know, you racked up good works and you kept the law and therefore God accepted you. I obey, therefore I'm accepted. That was the way it had changed. Paul says, no! The gospel changes that relationship. We are no longer obligated uh, to keeping the law in order to find salvation. We're also freed from the law as a means of our sanctification, of our becoming more and more like Jesus. Uh, we find that more clearly in Galatians. Galatians 5.18, where Paul writes, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. So he's clearly speaking not here of salvation, but of sanctification. Under law, contrasted with led by the Spirit. No longer are we trying to wring God's approval for us uh, by keeping the law, by ticking boxes. Uh, it is the power of the indwelling Spirit that uh, brings about real and lasting change in our lives. Now, in these two senses, uh, we've been freed from the law. We're freed from the law as a means of being saved, and we're freed from the law as a means of being sanctified. Now, that does not mean that the law no longer has a role in the life of a Christian. The very opposite. The moral law, the commandments and the laws related to them, are a revelation of the character of God. That's why the psalmist speaks about the law being sweet to his taste. Why is it sweet? Because it shows me God. And it shows me God and what God desires of my life. And God expects his people to fulfill this law by living lives of righteousness and love. Now that's what uh, the reformers call the third use of the law. And it's what we need to maintain and, and assert more and more in our day that the law has this third use as a way of life. But it's, all, it's, it's a way of life because of gratitude. Not uh, as a, a means, a, a tick-block means to either salvation or sanctification. Well, Paul speaks of this positive side uh, at the end of verse 4. So, my brothers... You also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit to God. <coughs> now, uh, at this point, I want to part company with uh, some uh, other preachers, uh, some of whom I, I, I respect very much, who continue the, the marriage analogy and want to speak about being married to Christ. So belonging, they understand, is being married to to Christ, and even fruit, bearing fruit, are understood as children from a marriage relationship, but children that represent good works. Now, 
there is, there is a tradition in the church of talking in this way and of using the Song of Solomon in this way, uh, of the believer being married to Christ. So I need to say why I disagree and why we're taking a, a, a different route uh, in this verse here this morning. First of all, the overwhelming majority, the huge majority of commentators on Romans and on this passage uh, are agreed that Paul doesn't make an extended allegory out of marriage. They are agreed that he is one point, and one point only, and the point is the death of someone, i.e. Christ, can bring about a changed relationship to the law. That's all Paul's saying by using the marriage illustration. Christ's death changes our relationship to the law. Second, to use it as an allegory right through leads to confusion. Uh, in verse 3, it's the husband who dies, i.e. Uh, law. But in verse 4, it would be the wife who dies. So it becomes a bit confused, and some more liberal commentators say, oh, Paul's hopeless at illustrations. Uh, he's got into a complete muddle. But they can only say that because they are carrying the illustration of marriage through uh, into uh, verse 4. And that's wrong. Uh, it, and the analogy ends in verse 3. And then finally, uh, as men like Liam Morris and John Stock point out, the Bible is always careful to refer uh, to uh, the, uh, the marriage relationship as being between Christ and his church, not between Christ and the individual. You'll never find the Bible speaking directly about the individual being in a marital relationship with Christ. Our relationship with God is patterned on that of children of the living God. God is our Father through Jesus Christ. Now, when you start thinking of Christ in a romantic marital way, it leads to dodgy worship songs. It creates a, a framework for thinking about Jesus which is quite unhelpful and misleading. So what Paul is saying here, I believe, is that the old relationship with the law is gone because of our union with Christ in his death, and we have a new relationship. We belong to Christ. Now that belonging is also used elsewhere in terms of being a slave to Christ. So it doesn't need to have the, the, the marital uh, idea attached to it. We're brought to Christ in order that we might uh, have qualities like love and joy and the rest of the fruit of the Spirit that we find in Galatians 5. And therefore, it's inconceivable that we should go on sinning. And this, of course, is his point. Uh, we've had a, a relationship we once had with the law changed because Christ died. That death changes our relationship to the law. Instead, we've been brought to Christ and we are now to bear fruit of righteousness. That's why the relationship has changed. Our obligation to the law has been replaced by an obligation to Christ. We belong in order that we might bear fruit, the fruit of a new life for him. How is it going to happen? If we don't have the law as a master uh, beating us up in order to, to, to do better, to, to, to be better people, where is the, the motivation, the dynamic, the energy going to come from? Well, we find out in verses 5 to 6, there is a new dynamic. Beforehand, we were, we were dominated by our sinful nature. There was an old 
energy in our lives before we were Christians. Uh, the ruling principle in our lives was self-centered. It was opposed to God's rule. The law, therefore, had a negative influence. Think of that. Something that was good had a negative influence on us. Paul says, the sinful passions aroused in our lives were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. Now, this is, again, really important. Uh, before we're Christians, before we're renewed by God's Spirit, our, our whole being, our nature, is hugely responsive to sin. We react to the law by resenting it and rejecting God, and we hate the God who is just and who is judge. And uh, we see this in the way that if we are told not to do something, then that's the very thing that we want to do. And it's true from, from the very uh, youngest to the oldest of us. Uh, sin stirs up a desire to disobey law. You see a sign saying, keep off the grass. What do you want to do more than anything else? We want to walk over that grass. Sin stirs up and urging us to defy the law. Now, that's why it's so crazy uh, to, to think that uh, children, young children, can be uh, taught to, to live uh, morally, at least to live safely, by, by teaching them all kinds of perverse uh, sexual behavior in school in the interest of giving them knowledge. Uh, it is so, uh, so foolish because it simply stirs up a desire to explore what they have been told is unhelpful or dangerous and results in tragic uh, outcomes. When we are renewed by the Holy Spirit, however, we are no longer dominated by sin in that way. Now, that's not to say that we don't struggle with sin. It's not to say that we don't still have a sinful nature. But as Paul has already said, sin no longer has mastery over us. There's a change, a shift in the balance. The Holy Spirit is now in your life. You are called to live in victory. And although the battle may be fierce, it is not an unequal battle as it was in the past. The love of God now compels us. We are under the, the expulsive power of a new affection. An interesting story told by an Italian author uh, about um, uh, a situation in a poor village in Italy. Uh, the village wanted to erect a wooden cross and set it on a hill that overlooked the village. And in order to uh, create the cross, they sought out the village carpenter, a man by the name of Ultimo, and he was commissioned to do the work. Well, uh, he finished the work, he did it painstakingly and well, but the bishop uh, was a long time in coming to that village uh, to set the cross up on the hill and to consecrate it. And so, uh, it uh, simply stayed in his house for a long time. Now, it happened that this uh, man, Ultimo, the master carpenter, was no paragon of virtue. He was a, a very uh, brutal uh, character, 
Uh, his workshop was known as a place where there was crude, blasphemous language. Uh, cursing and, and swearing came naturally to him. Uh, he had a wife who was a very quiet and patient woman who had lived with him for many uh, years um, and put up with this uh, abusive language and also with the knowledge that he was a dishonest man and known throughout the community for being dishonest. But now something unexpected happens. He's finished his cross. Uh, it's been uh, smoothed down, it's been polished, and uh, he's had to have it standing in the corner of his little shop. And there it is, standing in the corner. And every time he comes in in the morning, he is greeted, as it were, by this cross. And when he comes uh, back uh, at night, uh, he has a glance across it, as though he feels that he ought to say farewell to the cross. And when his friends come in, uh, with all of their uh, blasphemous talk, Ultimo's glance often steals timidly across to the cross, as if wanting to beg for forgiveness because of what's going on. And his wife uh, even notices a change in his attitudes and in his life, and doesn't know the reason for it yet. She thinks that, first of all, her husband has become sick or something. And then the, the author of the story goes on to comment, if such a transforming influence can be exerted by a piece of wood in the corner of a workshop, how much greater must be the influence of the living Christ who was once hanging on just such a piece of wood, but who now is no longer there, but since his resurrection is with us. The new power, the new dynamism that comes from being united with Jesus Christ. Friends, there are two deadly attitudes to the law. Uh, on the one hand, there's the legalistic attitude of the Pharisees that thinks that if we uh, tick them off one by one, we will earn God's grudging approval. Uh, if we do that, we will end up being frustrated and crushed because the law was never given for us to earn salvation. On the other hand, uh, there are those who throw the commandments out the window and disregard them. And in doing that, uh, they find themselves at sea morally and they will make shipwreck of their lives because they have done that. But if you are freed from an attempt to seek to cause God to accept you because you have come to know the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus Christ in your life and have been united to Christ in his death and resurrection, then, friends, you find the law to be something which is incomparably sweet to the taste. It's no longer a means of acceptance. It's a means of expressing our gratitude to God. That's why the, the preface to the Ten Commandments is so significant. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Now, therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. The order is so important. Notice God does not say if you keep the commandments, I think about taking you out of the land of bondage. 
he says, he says, I took him as a wounded, as a cross of blood from bondage. Now, here's my commandment. Dear child, you may show you love me. You shall have no other gods before me. And the law becomes sweet to our taste. One of the, the stories in, in our Bibles that, that expresses the, the new attitude to, to the law uh, most beautifully uh, is from the New Testament and uh, from uh, the, the story of the sinful woman who comes to Jesus when he's at the house of Simon the Pharisee. Remember, she washes the feet of Jesus with her tears, dries them with her hair, anoints his feet with ointment and kisses them. Simon is his Pharisaic friends look on and they're disgusted. And they're thinking about Jesus. They don't know what kind of woman this is. And Jesus says, I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And sometimes we, we misunderstand it and we, we, we think that this woman's act of love has earned her forgiveness. That's, of course, not the way uh, it goes at all. It means that her recognition of how much she has been saved from has spurred her to this extravagant expression of love. And here's where the issues of Romans 7 come in. You see, the, both the Pharisee and the sinful woman believed in the law. Yes? But for the Pharisee, for Simon, the law was something with which to beat other people over the head. He could never keep it himself, and he expected other people to do what he couldn't. And so long as he used the law as the way of salvation, he's doomed to failure. But the, the woman had also used the law. And the law had shown up to her the huge extent of her sin. She'd come to realize how great a sinner she was. She came to the great Savior with a great love. And she did what Simon, with all his Pharisaic rules and regulations, had not done. He had failed to show the customary appreciation of a guest by washing their feet. She had kept a law he had overlooked because of the new dynamism of gratitude in her heart. The gospel doesn't do away with the law because our sinful nature hasn't been done away with. But what the gospel does now takes us first of all to Mount Calvary, then to Mount Sinai. Takes us first to see the extent of the love been shown to us as sinners. And then to the place where we find how our gratitude can be expressed. Maybe you've had too much of the legalist in your heart. And you need to recognize that and come to Mount Calvary this morning and to see again with new eyes love of God poured out for sin.
that you might then express that gratitude in the sweet, sweet law of God given not to earn our salvation but to show our gratitude. May God bless to us with that. Father, we thank you for uh, the law that you have given to us and we confess how prone we are to abuse and misuse it. Create within us, we pray, a new desire to please you from hearts renewed by your Spirit. In Jesus' name.